Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Hi, this is Bill Peacock, and welcome to episode 58 of the Liberty Cafe. I'm really glad that you could be with us today here, whether this is your first episode or your 58th episode, because what we and a lot of other people in Texas are doing, including my guest today, who we'll talk about in a little bit, are working to bring liberty to Texas and end oppression that we see in a society today. And really glad to be partnered with in this business, Texas Scorecard. It's a great group of men and women who are fighting for liberty at the in Texas at the local level, at the state level, and really, you think about it, up to the national level and even the world. Because what's behind a lot of the work that Texas Scorecard does is this understanding that while political or civil liberty is important, it can't stand on its own and stand for very long if it's not undergirded by Christian liberty, the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ. And and it's amazing when you start looking at things in that term, then that something that looks so big and so hard to achieve really becomes, you know, a certainty. It's just about how long it's going to take us to get there when we know that Jesus Christ is working behind us. So anyway, grateful for Texas Scorecard, our sponsor. Please go visit them over at texasscorecard.com. Well, our guest today, I'm very excited to have him on today, is Matt Schaefer. Welcome, Matt. It's good to be here, Bill. Good. Uh, just I'll start, for those of you who might not know where, who Matt Schaefer is, uh, I'll start where his bio starts because I think that's a great way to uh, start. He's married to uh, Jaslyn. Jaslyn. Right? Jaslyn, good. And um, who is a director of the Apache Bells at Tyler Junior College. That's pretty neat. And then uh, their parents to two young children, a uh, daughter and a son. And, you know, I think for a for all of us, but Christians in particular, uh, that marriage and parenting is really where things start for us. And um, and then everything else goes from there. So we'll start there with that. But Matt, beyond all those things, is a state representative. He represents uh, the, the city of Tyler and uh, Smith County in the Texas legislature. He's been there since uh, 2013. He came in back in 2013 with the, the most conservative freshman class, one of the largest freshman class, and certainly the most conservative and I think most influential over time uh, classes that um, we've seen in the Texas legislature. I don't know if y'all know this, but the Texas legislature doesn't lot, really like freshmen. They like to stay around for a long time. So sometimes it's hard to get into the mix, particularly uh, when these incumbents just keep running over and over and over again. But Matt and a lot of others got in there. And I guess, I guess Matt's an incumbent now, but we'll let him slide on, on that one. <laughs> it's hard to believe. Yeah. And so Matt has done a lot of things in the legislature since then. Uh, he was the first chairman, one of the founders and the first chairman of the Freedom Caucus and, um, and has passed a lot of good legislation, most recently uh, constitutional carry. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So again, thanks for, uh, thanks for being on, Matt. It's great to be here. Thank you for what you're doing. Yeah, so we're we're talking about constitutional carry and the Second Amendment, uh, but before we get into that specifically, um, this show is going to drop in about two weeks. But about a, two hours ago or so, we heard the news that Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty on all counts. So that's 
somewhat related to the topic that we're going to be talking about today. So I'd love to get your, uh, your thoughts on that right off the bat. I think justice was done. You know, I believe that self-defense is a God-given right given to every person. I think you can support that from Scripture. And, you know, in Jesus' day, uh, it, it was a sword that people carried. In our day, uh, it's a firearm. Uh, it's commonly a handgun, uh, in some cases a rifle or a shotgun. But a, a firearm is the modern-day means of self-defense for Americans. And uh, for most people, uh, a handgun is an ideal uh, way to protect yourself and your family when you're out and about. But in Texas, uh, since 1871, for 150 years, uh, carrying a handgun in public was generally prohibited by law. Uh, and then eventually, uh, we got uh, legislation passed, the, the concealed carry law that, you know, famously George Bush kind of, um, you know, got across the finish line. And there was a lot of controversy about that. And then eventually they um, allowed open carry, you know, so that person with a handgun license could actually, you know, carry it in a holster uh, on their person, uh, on their belt uh, or, or their shoulder. And there was much to do about that, and, and then nothing happened. So uh, we finally uh, got constitutional carry across the finish line, and, and I think that's you know kind of what you want to talk about today. But what you see with Kyle Rittenhouse is ultimately he was carrying a, a rifle, and um, you know if you take him at his word, uh, he showed up to protect the other's uh, property. Uh, there was a lot of looting and rioting going on in Kenosha and he came with uh, the purpose of helping others and, and had a rifle uh, that was carried lawfully and ultimately ended up using that in self-defense and the jury agreed. Yeah, it is it, pretty amazing. I was watching with my uh, son uh, after it happened, we just watched a little blurb of the verdict being read out. And I mean, it, it brought tears to my eyes, you know, because the final not guilty, the fifth not guilty uh, verdict was rendered and he just collapsed and it brought tears to my eyes because I mean, I was sitting next to a 18 year old boy. My son is the same age as Kyle Rittenhouse and, you know, killing somebody as he did, even in self-defense is, traumatic. It's something he's going to carry with him the rest of his life. But, but to see, from my opinion, anyway, just this, this unjust justice system. I mean, I don't think he can really even call it a justice system sometimes in America today, but going after him when it was so obvious to anybody who watched the, saw the trial and saw the evidence that this was self-defense, that it was just, just a I was so glad for him that he's not going to have to suffer that much farther. So I thought it was a great thing. Well, the young man's whole future hung in the balance today. And so to see the emotion, uh, you know, his hands were trembling. Uh, he was shaking visibly. Um, but I, I think it also gave us a little bit of faith too, uh, for all of us to see uh, the, the right thing done. And, and I think that evidence was pretty clear. Uh, in this case, and certainly the state's prosecution did not bring evidence 
uh, that would have proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt. There's no yeah. question. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right about that. Well, again, like I said, that, that ties in very well to what I'd like to talk to you about today, which is open carry. You already explained it, the ability to carry a pistol in particular. It was not everybody knows this, but it was already legal to walk around with a rifle without a permit in, in Texas uh, for for the most part, you know, as long as you did it properly and everything. But you couldn't carry a pistol unless you had a permit or, you know, in, unless you're traveling, things like that. But But it took us a long time to get there. And. Well, I'll, I'll wait to till the motivation. You've already explained a lot of the motivation towards the end of this. So I want to talk about that a little bit more. But why do you think it took us so long to get to the place? I mean, to get to the place where this finally came into law, was it just an education process? Was there a lot of opposition along the way from people who knew but just didn't care anyway? I mean, maybe start us back at the beginning because you weren't the first person right, to try and get this bill no. across the line. No. Um, I'm going to give credit to the grassroots Second Amendment activists out there who have been so diligent for so many years, keeping the issue of constitutional carry uh, at the top of their priority lists, um, for working so hard to organize people to call their state reps, to call their state senators, uh, to hold rallies, uh, to advertise, to put out, you know, questionnaires and score people and, and hold them accountable. Uh, that cumulative body of work, uh, you know, talking to guys who were running in the primaries, talking to them when they were running in November in the general elections, uh, making them, uh, making all of us in, in elected office understand that they were not going away, that this issue mattered to ordinary Texans. It mattered to a lot of women. I, Bill, you, you would be surprised at how many women have supported uh, this legislation. Uh, and, and I want to come back to that. Please ask me about that later. But you asked why it took so long. So the success is a direct result of the grassroots activists, okay, and all the organizations that, that put the pressure on to get this done. But why is it so hard? I, I think a, a few reasons. One, um, I think the media had convinced a lot of people that uh, Texas would turn into the wild, wild west uh, if a law like this passed. Even though there were 20 other states that had already passed it and it didn't become the wild, wild west. In fact, we had data out of the, you know, the largest other state would have been Arizona, even that's only like 10 million people. You can look at the greater area of Phoenix, Arizona, about four, 4 million people. Uh, and they have had constitutional carry for 10 years. And they actually saw their crime rates go down in the years immediately after. And I'm not going to say that's the reason, but you certainly can't say that right. their crime rates went up. They didn't go up. Um, so the, <clears throat> the media narrative was there. Law enforcement groups, law enforcement groups have opposed this bill uh, for years, uh, you know, groups like uh, Cleet and TMPA, you know, they, they opposed open carry. They've opposed a lot of these bills uh, over the years. And I, I think that was unfortunate. Those groups are dominated by large urban departments. 
you know, out here in Tyler, you know, my, uh, our sheriff, we're, we're a county of 230,000 people. My sheriff supported it. We had, uh, you know, frontline, we had one frontline patrolman come down here on his own in civilian clothes and testify in favor of it. So I think the, the large organizations that are, a lot of them, their chief of police are hired by Democrat mayors. Uh, they were out of touch with their rank and file uh, law enforcement officers. But also, Bill, and here's the real crux of the issue. Uh, leadership in the House and the Senate prior to this year opposed the bill. Okay? Let, let's just, uh, and, and I would say Dennis Bonin uh, in, in the 80, um, you know, sixth legislative session, he on a personal level was good with it but didn't believe it was the right time. Uh, so I, I'm not going to say Dennis Bonin opposed constitutional security. I don't think he did, but he certainly didn't do anything to get it to the floor or allow it to come to the floor. Uh, Dan Patrick didn't like the bill. Uh, hasn't in the past and had, you know. Um, you yeah, he know, didn't seem to really like it even this session. No, no. He, he, he was, he ended up coming around to the right position, but he had to be brought along. And, um, you know, he's had some opinions that on the Second Amendment, like, you know, ending private transfers, ending private sales uh, between Texans that have been very problematic. But let's talk about the House of Representatives. So we had a new speaker, Dave Phelan. And there's probably some listeners and readers of, you know, Scorecard that are pretty critical of Dave Phelan. But you might be surprised to realize that on this issue, he was rock solid. He came to uh, a lot of us early, you know, going into the session and said, we need to bring this bill to the floor. And it might surprise people, but what I'm telling you is the straight truth. Dave Phelan, me. Dave Phelan uh, not only supported the bill, but once I became the author uh, of the bill that was moving, offered his full support, the resources of his staff, his communications office, his his lawyers, to do whatever was needed uh, to do to pass the bill. And once we passed the House and we went into the Senate and we got into some difficult negotiations, um, not once did Dave Phelan come to me and say, you know, let's water it down. His His position all along was, let's fight for everything we can get. I mean, the bill we sent from the House over to the Senate was straight whiskey. I'm telling you, it was straight whiskey, uh, and they took the Senate took it and they poured some of that whiskey out. They left most of it full, but then they added a little water. Uh, we ended up with a good bill. Okay, I don't want to be too critical of the Senate, but uh, we sent them straight whiskey. So ultimately, the stars aligned so that we had a speaker who who intellectually and politically supported the bill, and. Uh, the grassroots were there to um, really put incredible support behind it. And ultimately we got it done. Well, that's, that, that's a pretty amazing story uh, because I, uh, like I said, I was a little bit surprised to hear that because I I'd followed it, but probably not closely enough to pick up on that storyline. So it's good to hear because as you know, and, and probably a lot of uh, folks know, in the um, out there who are listening to this, leadership 
makes all the difference. And we're not here to, to trash or, you know, give high fives to leadership here, but, but nonetheless, you know, basically if leadership wants a bill, it's going to pass, right? I mean, it, it, all the things that are need to happen, happen because there's majorities on both sides, you know, Republicans and those kind of things. And I think one thing, you know, conservative activists get frustrated about is that you have these majorities as, um, uh, Joanne Fleming likes to talk about her, her favorite number right now is 19 because it's been 19 years, uh, almost 20 at this point since Republicans had taken total control of the Texas legislature. And, you know, don't want to be a pessimist and negative all time. There have been some really good things happen last 20 years, but there's also been some things that haven't happened and, uh, that a lot of us would like to see. So it's good to see that leadership stepped up on this and, and got it through. This was a good session for babies and the Second Amendment. Yeah, it, re- it really was. And I, I want to talk about babies in, in just a minute because when we talk a little bit more about federalism, I, I did think that uh, you talked about Bonin and, and the media. And, and there was that incident last time at, at Bonin's home where, you know, an activist walked up apparently best I can tell, walked up to drop off a flyer at Bonin's house. And, and the next thing you know, in the media, it's being portrayed as this attack on Bonin and all these kinds of things. And at that point in time, this is back in 2019, the bill was dead, right? It, it was going no farther because the media had turned this narrative into that kind of like, uh, you might say, what happened to Kyle Rittenhouse, who was as soon as it happened, almost, he was this white supremacist and all this kind of thing. And uh, fortunately, in both cases, uh, justice seems to have been served. So. Uh, you, you mentioned women. You asked me to ask you about women and their support for this. It's really been remarkable uh, how many women we have seen not only be part of the grassroots movement to come down to the Capitol and testify, but just just in ordinary conversations about this bill. Because I, I think women see... Um, the ability to have a handgun on their person for protection as uh, a way to level the playing field. Some women definitely see it that way. I had the privilege of being invited by the Tyler NAACP to speak to their meeting uh, locally here a few weeks ago. And uh, on the subject of constitutional carry, they wanted me to come on and talk about it. And, and you know, they're no. usually on the opposite side of, of where I am politically and so I was uh, kind of bracing myself for that meeting to get a lot of negative questions, but it was exactly the opposite. I remember one remark um, from an African-American woman. She said, I'm a nurse. I'm a home health care nurse. I travel and I want this. And so I think that uh, politically, the Democrats have miscalculated uh, on this. And I think the number of minorities uh, that support the Second Amendment right uh, is really much larger than they realize. And I think now they see that we're standing up for them. And look at it from a criminal justice perspective, okay? People can talk about a lot of black young males who have gotten in trouble, and some of them have picked up an unlawful carrying of a weapon charge. Right. Um, if they're not doing anything else wrong and they are law-abiding citizen going forward, 
that black male is not going to get arrested for this. Exactly. And I think that they see that and understand that. And, uh, you know, they're not going to be, um, it's going to force everyone to consider who's really responsible for your own personal safety. And in an environment where there's, there's one narrative that says we don't really want police to be so uh, forward uh, and engaging every time there's some encounter out there. You know, they, they kind of want – some people want the police to really kind of step back. Well, if that's the case, who, who is there? Who is there to defend you and your family? Mental um, health workers, I think, is the answer, right? Yeah. Mental health workers, you know, obviously we'll send a social worker out there to the scene. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's going to work so well. I really don't. But you know, the, the example I used when uh, I laid the bill out on the house floors, I talked about, you know, imagine two women, you know, one's a middle income woman. Uh, maybe she doesn't have to work, uh, stays at home. And she's the guy, she had the time and the money uh, to go take the handgun course, to get the fingerprints, to fill out all the paperwork, to wait weeks. So she could have that card that she had to have with her so that when she went on a walk in her neighborhood, she could put a pistol in her purse if she wanted to. Um, but that low-income woman who's, who's maybe you know having to work every day, gets home and is exhausted and, and just wants to get a break from her screaming kids and go walk in the neighborhood and, ha- and, and doesn't want to have to look over her shoulder. Doesn't have right. the time or the money. Uh, or what about that woman who's got an abusive ex-boyfriend uh, and, and a friend or an uncle wants to loan her a pistol to keep with her? Should the state of Texas tell her that she was going to go to jail if she does that? Because the criminals just don't care. Bill, that's the reality. They, they don't care. The felons that are carrying firearms, that's against the law today, and yet they're still doing it. So constitutional carry ultimately uh, returned some of the advantage to law-abiding Texans, and that's where we have to put our faith. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. Well, again, thank you for doing that, and congratulations. Uh, I think, like you said, a big win for the Second Amendment in Texas this session. And um, let's go ahead and, and talk a little bit about this concept of federalism. And so I'm one of the things I'm doing now is I teach 12th grade government and economics uh, class from sort of a biblical perspective. And, and one of the things that we are looking at right now in that class is this concept of federalism, right? how, how the original founders set it up to have this balance between the federal government and the state government in order to protect our rights. And, and you know this, and, and most of our listeners know this as well, that the, the system that the founders of our country set up isn't exactly the system that we're working under today. Yeah, we still have all the same, you know, all, all the same pieces are there, but it's not working uh, the same way it used yeah. to. And so I'm, I'm not going to get into the uh, all that that's a whole episode on its own. But what I would like to talk about is some of the issues that are facing Texas right now from a federalism issue. Uh, one is, of course, you mentioned abortion, and the other is uh, immigration and borders. So 
do, do you have a preference where you'd like to start on that? I'd like to talk about the border because the border is still on fire. Uh, okay. The border situation has not been solved. Uh, by my count, uh, we have had over 1 million uh, law enforcement encounters with illegal aliens coming across the Texas border so far this year. Over 1 million. Okay, those are the ones that we've detained and apprehended. And some right. of them were turning themselves in. Some of them were apprehended. That doesn't count the ones that we didn't. Uh, but we find ourselves in a position where, although the founders fairly clearly uh, gave some responsibilities in our legal framework to the federal government for immigration, okay? But where, where we are now is that the federal government has not only abandoned border security and immigration issues, they have done so intentionally, purposefully, said, we're not going to help you, Texas. Exactly. And I do not believe that our founding fathers uh, believe that if the federal government intentionally abandoned a constitutional role, that the states would be left without their own remedy. And so I am to the point where I believe the whole of state government must look at this completely differently. I think our governor and our legislature should say the federal government has intentionally abandoned us, uh, abandoned the rule of law, exposed our, our citizens to trespass, to illegal activity, to human trafficking, to drug trafficking, to all sorts of things that are wrong. The integrity of our borders has been um, degraded. And the state of Texas has rights under the U.S. Constitution, certainly has rights under our own Texas Constitution as a sovereign state to fill in the void. And I think that we should challenge the constitutionality of the current framework. Uh, and at some point, we're just going to have to say, you have intentionally abandoned the people of Texas and the, the people of Texas through our own elected government are going to fill in uh, the gaps uh, and secure our borders. Yeah, it's uh, what you're talking about. There is what we've been talking a lot about in my class. It's this concept of the lesser magistrates, right? Which is a you know, you know when, when the Protestants broke away from the Catholic Church, they became under attack from kings and emperors and princes and things like that, and so they were confronted with this concept. What do we do when the, when the lawful authorities over us are trying to persecute us or kill the people under us? And, and they developed this, this theology of the lesser magistrate where lesser magistrates, let's, you know, it could be a governor, it could be a state representative, it could be a mayor, it could be a local judge, a police, uh, a police chief, sheriffs. We've seen sheriffs do this a lot lately and, and say, it's their responsibility as Christians, not just as Christians, but just as leaders in government to protect the people under them from the tyranny above them, right? Of course, the, the place that played out, you know, that was John Calvin and, and a lot of people like him, but the p place that first played out, of course, in, uh, in America was the American War for Independence, hmm. where we had these elected officials, you know, in Congress and who we're protecting the Americans citizens or not yet citizens, but the American colonists from the tyranny of parliament in King George the third. Right. 
And so the question becomes today is what do you as a state rep or the governor as a governor do to protect the citizens from this either tyranny or just abandonment of responsibility um, uh, below? So what steps does the, the Texas legislature or the Texas governor need to take to, to fix this problem right now? If I was governor uh, for a month, I would work with law enforcement and our Texas military forces. And I would say, I want to find a real clear example of uh, coyotes, Mexican cartels, uh, moving people and drugs across the border. We're going to watch them on the Mexican side. We're going to watch them cross the river. Uh, Not a group with women and children from Honduras, the Mexican cartels. We'll use that as the first example. Uh, get a group of 10 or 15 of them that crossing the border, wearing their camouflage and their big uh, backpacks full of dope. And not only would we apprehend them, but we would physically return them to Mexico. That we would right. deport them ourselves. And when we begin the process of using Texas military forces and our own law enforcement assets to return people to the other side of that river. And uh, in some cases, I think I would use our um, engineers and military forces to physically turn them back before they could cross and do those. And, and then that would trigger the court challenges. And I would just say, bring it. We're going to do it. You have intentionally abandoned this role and the founders did not leave us without a remedy, but we're going to take care of business. And, and I would begin to change the narrative on the Mexican side because on the Mexican side of the river, as long as they have got this huge uh, neon sign flashing open, come here as fast as you can, we'll help you, we'll give you benefits. Uh, as long as that's the message, we really can't slow it down. We really can't. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And it, it appears to me that that Texas, like you said, has to just start deporting people. And, you know, that, that's going to obviously set up a constitutional fight because uh, the, the, the federal courts and the, the federal government's going to say, you can't do that. You're not, we're the nation. We get to deport people. You just, you know, you take care of stuff within your own state, but I, I don't see any other way about it. And so it's going to set it up. And then, then the big question comes, what happens if the federal government, the, the Congress and, um, and the Supreme Court all say, Texas, you can't do that, right? And Texas is just going to have to make up its mind whether or not it's going to stand up to protect its citizens from this invasion, if you will, or um, they're just going to say, okay, Supreme Court, you win again. I don't know the answer to that. Uh Kind of like what happened during COVID when probably you and I, Bill, looked around at some of our neighbors that we thought were pretty uh, freedom-loving people uh, who turned into people who just said yes to whatever edict came out of the governor's mansion or the White House. Um, That might be a very telling moment uh, for Americans uh, and for Texans as to what kind of people are we going to be. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, we'll just we'll finish on this note also 
the abortion case, yeah. obviously the, the heartbeat bill that's up in front of um, the U.S. Supreme Court at this mo- moment. So Texas, you, the members of the legislature, you and, and your fellow members came up with this very creative uh, way of dealing with the, the problem of abortion today, of, or we might say the, the problem of Texans murdering their children some people would say, and used the U.S. Constitution as interpreted by the U.S. Supreme Court as a way to solve the problem and reduce, not eliminate, but at least reduce abortions in the state of Texas. And it's, yeah, it's pretty amazing to me to, to watch some members of the U.S. Supreme Court almost cry foul over the state's just doing what they've told them they could do over the years, right? And how the constitutional order works. And then all of a sudden it's like, I think Kavanaugh called it a loophole, right? And it's, it's Supreme court president. They don't mind using, you know, precedent in other ways. So, but my question to you is, uh, and I know, I know this is hypothetical, but uh, what happens if the Supreme court, doesn't over says once again, Texas, we're not going to let you do this. We face a really difficult situation. I think the Supreme court has a rare opportunity to um, one, do the right thing, which would be to recognize a right to life under the U S constitution for every person. Right. They should do that. But if they want to punt, and say, well, we're going to leave it up to the states. At least that would be a victory for the people of Texas and the babies in Texas to let the states determine uh, rights for the uh, preborn uh, little girls and boys in our state. But if we lose at the Supreme Court and the, the Casey, Roe, Re Wade framework stays in place for the most part uh, and they reject what we have done with our heartbeat bill, then, Bill, I don't see any good legislative options left. There there is not an idea in the pro-life movement and the people that think about this all the time that here's a bill that we've got sitting collecting dust on the shelf that if all this other stuff doesn't work, we're going to pull it out uh, and now we're going to run with this legislation. Right. But I don't know what legislation would work if this doesn't work. And so if the Supreme Court doesn't give us relief and overturns what we've accomplished on the behalf of protecting babies, then we are now into a conversation that's going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. Because legislative solutions uh, won't really be in front of us. And we're going to have to decide, does federalism come into play? And Texas does something to defend life um, against our federal overlords. Yeah. Well, and uh, I think that's the, the situation that we're being put in today by our federal overlords, as, as you so well put it. So, well, again, Matt, really appreciate you taking time to sit down with us and talk to us uh, about these issues. And uh, God bless you. And, and I hope things move 
well for you go forward in your family and in your uh, legislative political career. Bill, thank you so much. You know, the number one requirement that God has for all of us, uh, all of those who are in authority in elected office, whether you be a mayor or the president of the United States, is to love God, to fear God, to worship God. Uh, and if you don't do that, you're on the wrong track and you face judgment. And so I think we need to go back to the basics, uh, go back to what God expects of us uh, to, to uh, govern with righteousness and, and right thinking according to God's word. Uh, that's ultimately where we need to be. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, amen. All right, thank you again, Matt Schaefer, Representative Matt Schaefer, and thanks to everybody for listening to episode 58 of Liberty Cafe today. And also thank you to Texas Scorecard for being our sponsor. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Cafe by Texas Scorecard. You can find more shows and great content at texasscorecard.com. Please consider leaving a review or rating the show on whatever podcasting platform you listen on.